0: President Putin of Russia has unleashed war in our European continent. He's attacked a friendly country and an entirely innocent population. We have Ukrainian friends. Ukraine is a country that for decades has enjoyed freedom and democracy and the right to choose its own destiny.
1: This is Ukraine and Beyond, your weekly conversation series where I, Emil, speak to people who I believe want a total Ukrainian victory just as much as I do. Enjoy the conversation, slava Ukraini. Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine with Serhii Kostrykov. Yes, uh, thanks for that. Uh, Your wife's name, uh, whom I also spoke to, is more difficult though. um, But yeah, so I met you via your wife in your organization, Ukrainian Dialogues where you had this event about um, remembering the Holodomor. And that's what we're going to speak about today. But first, I want to speak a bit about where we stand with the war as of now. But can you maybe just um, present yourself and share a bit about your background, maybe also when you came to Denmark and stuff like that. And if you also participated in the
0: revolution of dignity i'm not sure but i would love to hear about that as well yeah absolutely and thanks for having me so um yeah i've been in denmark for around seven years by now and i came together with my wife who you already mentioned uh, to do my phd in neuroscience and uh, that's where i've been working in since then so i've been working at ku as well as danish technical university where i am right now as a postdoctoral researcher Uh, focusing on studying brain diseases and hearing impairment and um, yeah uh, throughout my life uh, i've been active in the political and uh, social activism senses so i've been a part of the revolution of dignity in 2013 and 14 and um, also in general of course when there are so many uh, important events happening uh, in your country and in general it's difficult to stay away from it i haven't been uh, that active since i've been in denmark before the full scale invasion started which of course have um, uh, motivated me to uh, activate my uh you can say forgotten skills uh, and uh, also of course find many uh, amazing people to work together and creating and um, co-creating the organization that you've already mentioned ukrainian dialogues and collaborating with many other individuals in Denmark. Huh? and
1: can you maybe which i also talked with um your your wife anastasia about share some light about your experiences during the yeah the Maidan
0: revolution yeah so i think this is something absolutely special of course there is um Many emotions uh, intertwined, of course, because there were times when uh, it was uh, very scary and it was very dangerous to be there. And as you may know, people were attacked and shot at Maidan and uh, so on. But at the same time, it always felt like they saw one right thing to do. Uh, So it's just about... And I think it's uh, very important experience in my life. When you feel like that, of course, there is a big danger ahead, but you know that you can undo otherwise. And uh, when you can see that there is something more than your personal safety, and I think this is important. And together with that, what was absolutely uh, astounding there was that there is a huge sense of unity and that has been always prevailing in Maidan, where you can feel huge support, understanding and solidarity uh, as much as you can. You feel like you really, every person standing there is your brother or sister. And that's uh, a very big deal. And that's definitely what has helped people to go through a very dark moments out there. So I think this is, uh, has been really important. And this has also been very telling to me and giving me lots of hope for the future of Ukraine and Ukrainian civil society. And that I think also where we can see that. With this unity, which I think has been amplified even more with a full-scale invasion, I wasn't surprised as many people on the West that Ukraine withstood that terrible attack, because I think many people actually still don't know much about Maidan and many people uh, are not aware of when Ukraine has started moving towards European values and European integration. And I thought that for me, it was very logical that Ukraine could withstand even the most terrible attacks from Russia, because I could see how people could, you know. Uh, fight for what they believed in already before that, mm. and one of the reasons I want to
1: keep talk, keep talking about the Maidan Revolution is that I already, as um, I think I was nineteen years old at the point, um, kind of, um, how can you say it? Like I found out about about Euro Maidan as I was um, writing about the prospects for a new Cold War um, back in two thousand and fifteen. And that's when I saw the documentary, which is on Netflix, and I want to repeat my recommendation for people to watch it, which is called Winter on Fire. And I really think that opened up a whole new world to me in terms of what is first of all possible when people unite and stand together in the face of tyranny, and it also led me, uh, led me to, uh, rethink, uh, like a rethinking of the way that I saw international politics, because before that, maybe I was a bit of a, like a leftist hipster, I guess you can say that was always looking for like the, yeah, the hair in the soup, um, when it came to United States and the West and any, and everything like that. But yeah, watching that documentary and realizing what Euromedian was about, um, completely changed my view of um, everything in that regard, because uh, that's when I realized that there is actually people out there that want freedom and that are really ready to die for it. So that was a huge part of my, um, yeah, like my political upbringing. And I really think that was also why when I realized um, what was happening along the Ukrainian border, I got so invested in the first place. And also, as you are saying, that was also why I knew before the Full-scale invasion was initiated. That it wouldn't succeed, as so many people otherwise thought it would, because I, yeah, understood what the Maiden Revolution was about. So, um, I, I'm I'm going to keep uh, mentioning that because I really think it's important for people to realize what that was about. And when I talked with um, your wife, we kind of agreed that you could to a certain degree, say that the starting point of the war we also have today was when the march of uh, a million happened in Ukraine, because that was a response to um, violent me- methods used by um, Yevgeny Yanukovych um, against protesters back then. Would you say that's a fair um, assessment or
0: Yeah, I guess uh, we kind of should uh, talk a little bit about our definitions of war, because I would say that, you know, in a way, a hybrid war of Russia against Ukraine have been going on for many, many, many decades. Actually, it never ended. Yeah, it never ended. And I mean, hybrid as of after our last, you can say, open war, which was uh, uh, 100 years ago before the USSR was established, when Ukraine have been, you know, forcefully... um, joined to ussr but so i would say that you know there was always a war going on in a hybrid sense and i think that Maidan just uh, was an uprising against that because you know victoria uh, who we were protesting against uh have been a puppet of kremlin and he has been a continuation of that terrible system and uh, trying to implement all of the worst practices there were uh, into ukrainian lives as well and that was you know an open Uh, protest against that and of course then it led to a more active phase of this clash I would say of this literally civilizational clash and of people stating that no we are not going to um, bail down on that and uh, of course unfortunately there was a response then from Russia invading Crimea and uh, in the eastern regions of Ukraine so yeah, it was uh, all going on in a you know spiral of escalation afterwards. Uh, and that was always the thing about the empires, right? Because if you want to stand up and fight for your rights, then there is very likely that you will get something like a war. Uh, and so, yeah, but uh, fortunately, Ukrainians didn't lose their resolve. And uh, that's also an important part that people are ready to sacrifice a lot for that. Mm. And I think it's important to bear in mind that
1: what actually started all this protest and um, what was like the, how can you say it, like what lay behind this civilizational clash was that Ukraine had a wish and the Ukrainian people had a wish to become a European democracy, whereas um, Yanukovych, who was a puppet of Kremlin, didn't want that. And then, yeah, obviously the Kremlin also didn't want that either. So... The background for this war we're seeing now um, is that Ukraine wants to exactly. become a part of the European Absolutely. Union, and that goes back like it's it's a, we are around the 10 year anniversary, yeah. and I guess. Yeah. So, so that's just important for people to bear in mind as well that this that, that was how it all started. But now, let's talk a bit about the war as of today, and we were talking about some things before I started the recording about there being a lot of negatives right now, and I don't want to get into what happened today in the Danish parliament, but so right now, when you follow the war and when you follow the political developments around the war, and I guess the like person off the street, you can say, would probably um, have a pretty bleak sense of where the war is right now, due to the development in American politics, some of the elections in Europe as well, and also looking at the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which maybe didn't win, as well as we all hope for. But can you maybe, yeah,
0: share your thoughts about all this? Yeah, so, uh, of course, as you already pointed out yourself, when we're looking on the global scale and with all the delays of voting for the bill to help Ukraine in the US, it really uh, makes one quite depressed uh, because it seems like if uh, nothing is done, the help provided by the US will uh, be exhausted very soon. And, of course, this is a very challenging situation and um, in that sense, it's quite heartbreaking to see it because... um, we can see that in Ukraine, there there are people, there is big resolve to fight for the right thing and for something that I think has been a priority for the Western world is the liberal democracy, is the human rights and so on. And now there are people who are ready to fight uh, and die for it. And uh, what is lacking is actually the material support, is the military help. So it's a very concrete things that are lacking and it's something that we can solve, but because of certain political uh, agendas and because of uh, certain conflicts uh, we just can't achieve that and that is something that is uh, worrying me a lot because of very directly on one hand it's a precarious situation for Ukraine which is uh, absolutely terrible because uh, people uh, keep dying and we are losing our best people on the battlefield and this is something that again can be prevented like very directly and so many lives of absolutely amazing people could have been spared should uh, many of the things that have been promised and are already delivered have been delivered some months ago and I'm, uh, when I'm reflecting also on the counter offensive, which I'm not a military expert to do but I think it's very uh, obvious to say that uh, Ukraine should have gotten much more than Ukraine has been given. And uh, of course, all the delays that have been caused by different uh, delays in delivery and supplies have given the Russians the time to build all the fortifications and all the means to make this uh, counteroffensive very difficult endeavor. So you can see the problems that are there and uh, of course when you're thinking about the uh, future prospects you know that ukrainians will keep fighting no matter what but it's just heartbreaking to think what the price for that can be and the fact that it can be actually mitigated if the west will be more active in supporting ukraine and i think this is also it says another level of danger for the west and for the history i think in a global sense because i think that Right now, we see a very global challenge to democracy and to the Western liberal order as such. Mm -hmm. And I think this has been the point that the autocracies have been trying to prove is that democracies cannot withstand long-term endeavors and that sooner or later, because of these internal conflicts, because of the changing of the uh, ruling forces, uh, there can be hiccups in the serious and large-scale processes. And in some way, that's what we're observing right now. And I think this is a very important task for us to preserve that and to prove that actually uh, democracies are strong and they can uh, withstand different sorts of attacks. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we are doing very well in that regard so far. Unfortunately. No,
1: yeah. <laughs> and that's, uh, of course, what you're saying is um, like a pretty dark story, I guess you can uh, say. I just want to convey the... I have always believed 100% in, like, a full Ukrainian victory, meaning that they will regain all their territories as of 1991, which is the territories that Ukraine are entitled to control under international law, and I think, first of all, what we're seeing in the U.S. is, like, very disturbing, because it seems as if the unity that Otherwise always have been in the United States about protecting democracy and standing up for human rights is a bit crumbling right now with the that like the far right Republicans which have gained a lot of power in, in the Senate and in the Congress. I I think um I and I hope that somehow the Congress will before um the end of the year manage to um yeah, to sign the, the bill to um to send the funds to Ukraine and so I I think this the judges are still up on that but it's just the fact that it has been um such a process um and it is still not um like written in stone that it will happen is like a very disturbing thing to um, to witness but I I really think that they will end up supporting uh, Ukraine with more funds so I think there is um, still reason to uh, to believe in the
0: U.S. Um, on that point, but of course that's up, that we will see. And I think we should believe uh, absolutely is just that, you know, every time when uh, we are talking in this, uh, you know, coziness of peaceful Copenhagen, we are more thinking in terms of whether something will happen. Uh, and we try to soothe ourselves, thinking that okay, it will happen at some point. But you know, when you are closer to Ukrainian reality, you understand that like it's also important how fast it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there are irreversible things happening, and that's why like every delay, even if it will happen at some point, is just
1: yeah. Mm,
0: yeah, and to that point,
1: if like I've said it a million times, um, but I, have of course, think that everything that we are sending today should have been sent when the war started and what we will be sending uh, one year from now on should have also been sent when the war started. And I think just there's a lot of things that we can agree on. Uh, is not good enough in terms of the uh, support. And But I just want to um, convey uh, hope as well in the midst of all this because I also think that it is important to keep Talking in such sense because then, like the the discourse is also what in the end determine political actions. And I I think also did you hear about what just happened in Finland? I guess
0: no, or perhaps. No,
1: well, that's like a positive news because they they just um I'm pretty sure, uh, the um, the parliament decided to like rainbow productions production of. I'm not a military expert, so I don't know the technical term for the artillery, but they decided to ramp up production for uh, artillery, which is very much needed for, yeah, yeah, for Ukraine. So so that's at least um, something like concrete and positive. Yeah. And I also think that here in Denmark, we have like a,
0: a government that is strong on, on these points. Oh yeah. I think Denmark is definitely the country that uh, is on the forefront, so uh, and I would like for more countries to take the Denmark Denmark as an example, so that would be really nice. Mm. And can you maybe share um some light and uh,
1: comment a bit about how it feels as a Ukrainian to witness this um, lack of yeah resolve basically that we're seeing right now
0: yeah i mean i'm not i'm not sure you can really convey that fully i mean of course it's uh it's very heartbreaking because uh you know like on one hand we see as i just pointed out when people are uh, in the peaceful european uh, cities uh, thinking in more relaxed terms about what's right and wrong and then again every hour every every yeah every short period of time in ukraine someone is getting wounded or getting killed and then you understand that This is the time when I think all of the important decisions should have been made. And now we just need to uh, know and think of how and not of if uh, in that sense. So I think it's pretty heartbreaking. And it's also when you feel like that there is seemingly a full alignment in the values. But at the same time, somehow we cannot get people on the West united about it. And I think that over these um, many, many months, uh, Ukraine have proven its uh, loyalty to all the declared values on all possible levels, starting from the fact that uh, the, you know, the military laws and the conventions are adhered to. And Ukraine is highly scrutinized under such an immense attack. And yet it has been opened and it has been proven that Ukraine is used to that there are many reforms happening as the war is ongoing. So I uh, actually think it's safe to say that Ukraine has proven the point, but at the same time, uh, it's it's very heartbreaking to see the lack of resolve and unity over the things that Ukraine needs. And going back to the um, column of our uh, general resolution in Economist, I mean, he also pointed out a very specific things that are needed. So again, it's just, yeah, it's just heartbreaking to see that, you know, there are uh, obvious ways to help it, but somehow we can get things together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And many of these thoughts we will also return to.
1: Um, but now I want to speak about the, like Polotomo, which was the yeah, man-made genocide against Ukraine in the early 30s by Standation, which was, yeah, so the initiator behind that, I guess you can say, was the evil dictator, Joseph Stalin, and yeah when i met you at that um, remembrance event for for that genocide you recommended me to watch uh, the movie called Mr Jones which is about this very young Welsh journalist um, who at the point actually was around my age which is just insane to think about went to the USSR um, and ended up in in Ukraine and documenting that but and then there is just, um, so many, uh, so much of what he experienced, I think, uh, resembles to a certain degree, what we're also witnessing, to, witnessing today. But can you maybe just, first of all, um, explain what the Holodomor was, what happened, and maybe if you, uh, yeah, feel secure about it, also
0: talk a bit about the scale
1: of it, which I think is something that nobody basically in the West actually realizes.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, we still are uncertain about many numbers because uh, everything has been silenced to such a huge degree that it's very difficult to, you know, figure out some of the things and unfortunately will stay, uh, obscure for us, but uh, regardless of the exact numbers, which uh, if we're talking about uh, human lives stem from somewhere Three millions to, in some estimates, eight, nine millions of lives at that point. And uh, the thing was that if we go globally into... Maybe can you just maybe like uh, frame it, like what, what it was? Uh... Absolutely. So I think let's, let's just go back uh, a couple of years before War were actually still on the verge of establishing USSR, because as we mentioned briefly, there was a war between uh, Ukraine and uh, the Bolsheviks about whether Ukraine will be independent or will be a part of yeah, the USSR. Yeah, one actually, yeah, exactly, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, in uh, 1921, uh, Ukraine lost and has been forcefully joined to the USSR. But uh, in fact, you know, there have been still lots of resistance, and there has been, uh, yeah, I mean, there was no uh, no desire to be a part of the USSR, and interestingly enough, it has also been very spread uh, in among ukrainian farmers and peasantry the people who were assumed to be maybe by default not as active necessarily but in ukraine there were many farmers protests and so on so that's something that of course has been uh, making the you the the bolshevik leaders quite unhappy and in general they have always been very scared of the Ukrainian national idea and the, the idea of independence based on these, uh, you know, ethnic borders, which actually at that point have been quite a bit larger, encompassing also North Caucasus and the uh, Kuban region, uh, for that matter. Um, so the thing is that uh, after uh, some time passed, and Joseph Stalin has came became the general secretary for the USSR, he have had a very um, Yeah, large-scale plans and absolutely tyrannic methods to deal with the things that he thought uh, should be dealt with. And then one of the tools was exactly this terror famine uh, that uh, was uh, essentially very uh, specific in the territory of Ukraine because some people tried to say that uh, there were some famine-like things happening in other regions, but in Mm -hmm. fact it's only in Ukraine that uh, there were ceiling of borders, so people couldn't move up, so which actually means that people... Was it only in you? And so it was Ukraine in North Caucasus, again, that part that was, uh, well, not a part of Ukraine yeah. you now, but ethnically was a region where there were many, many, many Ukrainians. So. It's actually very much a the Kazakhstan borders were not uh, so I'm not sure about the borders. I must say that in Kazakhstan, there were also actually pretty severe and mm-hmm. um, uh, aspects of that. I wouldn't comment on that because I don't Plus, you know all the details there, but I know that of course there was also very severe. And I think the motivation uh, might have been quite uh, similar to that of uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, genocide. So, and then, uh, of course, like as many people could have heard, there were uh, the food was forcefully taken from the farmers and there were laws like uh, that were prohibiting taking even the smallest amount of grain from the field and people were facing like either uh, many years in prison or even in death sentence for that sometimes and that was absolutely bizarre for ukraine because it was such a fertile land and it was such a rich farming traditions and uh, yeah, and it was, uh, there were many horrors that I'm not sure if we shouldn't mention that naturalistically, but yeah, people were dying just uh, on the streets and uh, in their hour. Uh, yeah, there, there were, uh, as some of the people remembering, there were no like, no dogs or, or birds or anything because people had to eat something and people were, yeah. It, it's terrible and we still uh, many of us have heard the stories from our grand or grand grandparents about that and uh, essentially once... Uh, Uh, being discovered also in the aftermaths when there were some populational studies is that uh, Ukrainian population uh, from, I think it was 1926 to 1939 has shrunken. The number of ethnic Ukrainians in the USSR has uh, decreased by 11%, uh, while if you compare it, for example, to the number of ethnic Russians, it increased by 28% over that time. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think illustrated that it was both, there was both a genocidal intent, but there were also actually some goals of, of that achieved, um, in a way. And I think, yeah, we can talk of more about it, but it also left a huge trauma. A, I think societal trauma that has not been processed because it has been silenced so much and, um. Yeah, I think uh, we can talk a lot about it, but maybe I'll leave it to you to guide the discussion.
1: Yeah, sure and sure. Um, So, I think that it is crazy that someone like me, who knew about the Milan revolution and who knew about at least like more recent Ukrainian history from 1991 up until today, like before the war, I knew about this stuff mainly from um, like the Euromaidan and then up until the war but I also knew a bit about Ukraine gaining independence and like the th- different political uh, movements that had been but even at that point I had never heard about the Holodomor, whole lot more the genocide against Ukrainians committed by the USSR regime and I think that just goes to show that it really isn't something that is, like, in the collective mindset of the, like, the Danish population uh, or the Western population in general, so I just think that that's kind of scary that we are so, uh, like, oblivious to such a horrific event happening. and. That of course can be to a certain degree explained by all the other terrible stuff that happened in the 20th century, uh, like the World War, World War II, and the yeah, genocide against Jews as well, the Holocaust. But still, like the Holocaust was on, in terms of pay, yeah, in terms of victims, as you uh, pointed out, was on the same scale and was just as horrific, and so. So when I first heard about it, uh, I was obviously very interested, and what I realized after watching the um, the movie that you uh, recommended to me, Mr. Jones, about that young Welsh journalist is that somehow, even though one was covering the truth back then and was telling about it to um, Western politicians and to Western media, mainly, in um, that focuses mainly on Britain, um, somehow we, um, like, I don't know, maybe you can say that uh, the elites somehow um, in, like, um, the most uh, important and signif- significant Western countries at the time, they decided to not talk about it, they decided to close their eyes, and I think maybe that is, uh, was a result of convenience, because... And I think a lot of things actually can be explained by um, yeah by convenience. Um, but what the reaction he met when he then came home and talked about this was that no, oh, that cannot be, cannot be true, and no, but that is a worker's paradise, and so on and so on. And I just think that's uh, um, maybe. I mean, so I thought about this before uh, because I think that there are like two contributing factors two what happened and one is of course just the evil nature of the USSR regime and Joseph Stalin but the other factor is the fact is the fact that we didn't do in the West, if I can speak about it collectively, we didn't do what we could have done back then. And I just think that those yeah those two things are like equally um like scary to think about because that also shows oh uh, when we look at the world we have today we see still people who are I'm not I'm not going to compare like Putin and Stalin um in like particularly but they obviously share some sentiments and also the reaction I think that we have today also shares some um, yeah s- some similarities and I just think that it watching that movie, and I actually just finished it uh, last night, so it's, like, very uh, fresh in mind, and I just think that was, um, yeah, insane to see. And I, I don't know if you have anything,
0: like, to elaborate a bit upon. Definitely, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, like, you pointed out the two factors, and I think it almost goes always, like, Hand in hand, it's a rule of thumb that for the evil to flourish, the good people should be silent, right? So in that sense, it's almost always the case, right? Because, uh, usually we have the situation where something can be done and then there is a perpetrator and there is also someone who would help instead of being just a bystander, right? And that's also something that was, I think, uh, tearing all of us apart when you kind of, especially, uh, I. I think all the way not only at the beginning but at the beginning I remember those very first few weeks when it wasn't actually decided very well on the West how much help and whether there will be much help to Ukraine and it's just like uh, you cannot understand how that can even be you know and uh, how can you convey that you know there is a huge crime uh, absolutely horrendous crime happening because you know for me it was always about some very direct allergies from, from your own like personal lives so when you see someone being abused on the street you wouldn't just pass by right and here we're not even we're not even talking about any military interventions we're just talking about the supply to the west exactly. right so and that's something that always was very painful to see because this is also not something that we are talking about um post-factum right it's not something that oh it has happened overnight and now we're just trying to mitigate the aftermath of that. But now it's like, it's still happening. There's still possible to do something about it. Like why are we losing time? So uh, yeah, I think that's uh, similar in that sense. And it's always, yeah, as heartbreaking as it is, uh, sometimes it's about what people are choosing to accept and trust. And if some people are not ready to help and act on it, for some people it's just easy to, easier to deny the reality and then they are conscious. Soon as uh, the the conscience is clearer in some sense, which is of course a way of self-deception, but uh, that's how our brain works sometimes unfortunately. But yeah, and uh, I would also add that there are actually many similarities between Putin and Stalin. I think one of the biggest, not biggest, but one of the signs of the danger of his regime was that he was exactly reviving the cult of Stalin and that was also which we also ignored completely by the way yeah exactly but that's that's the point there were so many red flags and that's why i think it's also important to talk about that uh, about the other more right now because the cult of stalin was revived in russia there were more monuments put uh, since like last couple of uh, uh, decades and that's just crazy and uh, and and yet in the West there was a thought that okay if we just integrate Russia into the Western economics then it's just going to be fine and that was not fine it was just going worse and worse and that was somehow ignored and now uh, yeah now Ukrainians are paying a very dear price but also the global world is paying the price far not as as big as Ukrainians not even to compare it to them, but
1: uh... yeah. yeah I think it's yeah I really get uh, like angry right now because. What I, I've I've realized, realized this a lot of times, but every time I think about it, it um, just makes me angry, is the fact that for some reason, we just keep um, deceiving ourselves into thinking that what a dictator say isn't what he means. And we've seen that over and over throughout history. So, yeah, Hitler, for example, already wrote in 1923, when he realized Mein Kampf, that his end goal was to annihilate all of the Eastern European population to, yeah, to make Germans live there. So that was something he said 10 years before we got to power, and he laid out all his ambitions in that book, and yet nobody cared about it, or at least ignored it, and I think we also saw it with Lenin, and with stalin i think and as we talked about mr jones said all those things to anyone who was interested in listening and yet we ignored that as well and now we have had putin who we have also completely ignored everything he said and you can also look at other regimes in like the iranian regime we have ignored them for a while as well um and i just I really don't know how to like uh, how we can fix that, like th- that that fault in our thinking. I guess because it seems as if we have to come at some boiling point where uh, where it becomes too much for us to actually keep ignoring it. And I think that was what we saw with uh, World War Two, and that is also what we saw with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So all the sanctions were implemented after the full-scale invasion. Why didn't we implement them in... 2014? Yeah, and maybe even earlier, maybe even uh, when he said at the Munich conference, like, yeah, to, like Eric. he basically said, my goal is to, uh, like, once again, uh, have Russian control over everything that is east of um, Germany. And for some reason, we, we kept on doing business
0: with him absolutely but i think to be frank is like of course we're talking about putin right now a lot but to be honest i think russia should have been sanctioned as hard as it is right now and actually harder already when they started war in Chechnya. yes that was a terrible genocidal war and that gone by unrecognized and i'm not sure if people are actually aware of, of that horror that was unleashed on chechenian people out there and I think that was already like a clear enough cut about what, what Russia was because I think somehow there was this delusion which was fueled, I think, by wishful thinking of the fact that people thought, okay, now the wall has fallen, now the Cold War is ended. But actually straight away after that, Russia has unleashed a terrible war, which should have been already a... It invaded the Moldova, right? And as it does of Georgia, 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 even after that, it's just like Chechen, uh, the first Chechen war was in 1991 already, so it was right after that, and that's something that should have been already a very clear-cut sign that, okay, Russia is not actually something that is just ready to be integrated to the Western world because it's not called USSR anymore, you know, and uh, actually, if you, if you look at what all of the like these uh, terrible uh, wars it has been unleashing on as you say yourself so now it's chechnya it's georgia it's syria and ukraine uh, so you can see that actually in some degree uh, some of the wars are even worse than the ussr was engaged with and in ussr if you remember afghanistan yeah. war there was also the protest of people Against that and so on and so forth. So sometimes when people now say that oh Russia has shown it is just as bad as USSR, actually the modern Russia is actually worse than USSR was. It's just our you yeah, know. like the modern Russia is is definitely I guess worse than
1: USSR after the Second World War.
0: Yeah, or, or be, I, it's, 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 Yeah, it's like it's a very intense, situation, but I think it's
1: definitely not better. And, but also, uh, what one has to bear in mind is the fact, and I'm 100% sure of this, that Vladimir Putin, if everything uh, was as he wishes, like everyone in Denmark um, sh- could be killed or should be killed because we are like loving freedom, which is something that he hates. So the fact that they maybe ha- haven't been able to commit as um, horrific uh, atrocities as the USSR did, in Ukraine, for example, before the Second World War, the only reason why he isn't doing that is because he doesn't have the, the power to… Um, yeah, yeah, and they're actually
0: doing terrible things uh, in the occupied territories, which I think is no better of whatever, and actually, as bad as it gets, and I think it's been actually very clearly documented. How many people do you think have been uh, deported? I will not be even guessing because the thing is that it's very obscure with regard to what happened to the, in the occupied territories. And uh, one thing is deportations, other thing is torture and rape and killings and so on. And I think the most, like, it's just the most terrible things that you can think of are documented by the UN. And actually, you can see the reports, you can see many, like, in what happened in Buche, it was completely open to the international journalist communities. and uh, sometimes it's just like so like as crazy as it gets, it's already happened. and that's why it almost feels like people get oversaturated by it. And then all of a sudden, they're saying that if they don't hear about it because it still happens on the occupied territories, then people forget, and this is very s- s- scary because it's it's happening as we speak. So yeah, it's just it's terrible. And what's actually also important, I think to realize for many people is that when the first Chechen war started that I just mentioned it wasn't Putin who was in power. So it's... uh, No, they're not. That's what's important to realize because if we're only targeting and thinking of Putin and think that if Putin will be exchanged to someone else and things will be good and well that's not true. Because the problems are much deeper than that. Mm. Yeah. We can
1: agree upon a lot of things. I want to return a bit to the uh, the documentary no not the documentary the movie about um Garrett Jones and then maybe use that as a sort of springboard to talk a bit about um today as well um and i think one of the like one of the things that really stood out to me after watching the movie was the fact that so all right anyone listening needs to know that the new york times after like the Russian civil war was settled and the USSR was established, they decided to have like a representative, um, like a journalist in the USSR, which um, was, um, I think it was Duranty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, Duranty. So he was like the, he was called from, um, I think it, it it's not important uh, if the dates are exactly true, but it was like something from 1922 up until 1934. He was like, um, the guy from the, 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 uh, the New York Times man in Russian or in USSR, he was called, and he won a Pulitzer Prize, which is like a very, um, famous journalist prize in 1924 for his journalism in at the Soviet Union. And by the time that Garrett Jones then comes to, yeah, the USSR and I think it was, it must have been in the end of 1932 or like beginning of 1933, I actually think, yeah, because he gets there in March. So it's like in the beginning of 1933, which were like, um, after the Volodymyr, the genocide had been going on for a few years in Ukraine. And so. He then comes, he meets um, Durantin, and then he uh, decides to go to Ukraine because he got a lead from another journalist who was there before him that he should visit Ukraine to discover the truth about what was going on there. And he did so, but that, that journalist is then killed by the, like the party um, because he was about to go there and cover that. And then, um, the Welsh journalist, Garrett Jones, has a sort of argument, I guess you can say, with, um, Durantin, uh, where he kind of criticizes him for cozying up to the USSR regime, like the, the horrendous regime and like making propaganda news for them. And yeah, so he then ends up going to Ukraine, documenting what was happening, basically risking his own life. And... He then, somehow, he gets back to Britain and tells that story. And then the answer to that story comes from Duranty, who in the New York Times basically calls um, Gary Jones a liar and says that everything that he uh, has said about the horrendous uh, genocide and starvation and so on in Ukraine was a lie. And he, like, uses the front page in the New York Times Something like that to um to convey that story, and what is just so uh, insane to me is that I checked afterwards because then I thought, all right, now with everything that's going on today and with all we know about what kind of regime USSR was, uh, that Pulitzer Prize must have been taken back, so he must have lost that prize. But apparently, they still uh, think that he should have that prize in the like in the commission. And I just think that goes to show that also the heritage that Western media has in terms of covering uh, Russia, in terms of covering uh, USSR, is um, something that they haven't really reconciled because if they had reconciled with that, they would have obviously taken that Pulitzer Prize back. And I think that the problem... Um, like it carries on today as well, so that because they were so neglected back then towards what was happening and because we were so neglected for such a long time about what was the USSR, we are still somehow uh, incapable of actually, um, spreading the truth about what Russia is doing and what is happening in the war and so on. So, so yeah, I just think that goes back all the way. Back then, and up until today, and I think that the fact that we didn't reconcile these things way earlier is also a problem today. Because let's say you are a young girl growing up, see your heroes, everyone who won the Pulitzer Prize, maybe or something like that, and then a guy like that is um is on it. So yeah, I just think that if that is just if
0: that is, it's just like that, you know. So, no, I agree. But also, I think there are several full problems here because on one hand, you know, to acknowledge that turanti should not have this footage surprise is also to acknowledge that the New York Times times have been mm-hmm. made a mistake in a, such a global issue to rely on one sole guy who can be safely called Stalin apologists right now and someone who've been covering up genocide. And that deal about it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, something that is uh, a big deal to do and something that they must do, of course. But this also, I think, goes to the fact that they don't want to admit the fact that they made a huge mistake because it's their responsibility also, even though they were not directly present there, but they had their person who was definitely lying openly about it. And so that's one thing, and you can actually see it also happening nowadays in uh, different occasions, Uh, is to admit that, okay, we can also actually be wrong here, uh, one thing. And another thing is that, um, you know, there is this very uh, profound need in order to be able to judge the current situation is to know the context, right? And that's why, like, that's why uh, your project with this podcast is so important. And that's why also we've uh, founded the Ukrainian Dialogues Organization is to try and provide people as much context as possible. Because it's very difficult to really judge something if everything you know is just... From today's news, uh, especially in the um, in the environment of such a big uh, informational war on the side of Russia, so you really have to know what has been happening. And if you know when you know about Holodomor, then it looks very scary for you when you see another Stalin monument being put up in Russia, right? Uh, so that's why it's important, right? And it seems like that's what uh, the West, like let's put it collectively here, have been lacking over a really long period of time. And there are many like reasons for that, starting from the representation of the Eastern European history as such, that has always been taught through the frisms, as and we talked about as well, that- and so on. And that's, that all is a part of this huge problem that has again, un- unraveled in this uh, huge war right now, and has been a part of the wars before that Russia has been unleashing on its neighbors. So yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, it's, it's it's. I think the problem is that uh, and you must maybe um, know something about this as well. Uh, studying like neuro, you you're studying the brain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neuroscience. Neuroscience. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm not strong in <laughs> nature science, but um, I think that um, it is a problem that goes down to the very core of being a human uh, being because. We like to think, um, like as humans, as you also el- alluded to earlier, that we were right, or that um, we don't have to do stuff because there isn't any stuff to uh, like fight against, and there isn't any struggles that we need to take, and so on. And I think that is the case with, um, and 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 it's not to say that uh, I don't want to attack like media in general because. I don't like that, and I think that a lot of media is covering uh, the truth and are telling uh, what is happening and so on, but in the best of all worlds, I would like more media to keep focusing on what is happening in Ukraine and to speak more bluntly about what is happening in Ukraine and to be more precise when they are um, reporting from Ukraine. and what what a lot of, of media and i think this is also down to convenience is that they have to like look at it from both both sides for example and when you do it um like that it you just end up at least according to me um not giving the not giving the right picture of what is happening and yeah and i think that it, it goes down to the very call of being uh, like human beings because we don't like to um, feel that we are uh, obli ob- like, oblige obliged, uh, yeah, to to do so much. And I think that media journalist um, in general works uh, works like that as well. And I like that as well. So so that is just something that I'm not sure really how to how yeah how to change. But that is maybe what you're saying, like that we keep bringing more uh, content, more content and talking about it. But I guess it's just up to uh, like the people like you and me doing, doing such stuff.
0: Oh, definitely. And also, of course, like there are many brilliant journalists who are doing a great job Uh, and I think, um, I hope that uh, many of them also realize many of the journalists in general, how important their work is nowadays, because uh, you know, in the modern world, there are many challenges that media outlets were probably not uh, facing before because now it's a complete oversaturation with the information, but we still need some sources that we can rely on. Right. And that's why it comes uh, to a high importance when the uh, reputable sources are able to reconcile with their own mistakes and correct for them, because that's the only way we can keep trusting. Some of the sources like that and of course we're starting uh, from both the objective reporting of what's happening without covering it up and uh, uh, also as you pointed out yourself when people try to both side it and they kind of cite something that putin has said is kind of a bit ridiculous because we know that like a guy is not a source you want to Mm -hmm. rely on only if you want to just tell people that putin has said that and not to say that yeah, putin has said that since there is a high probability that this is true you know this is wrong to do it right so one should not rely on putin's words in reporting or specifically counter arguing uh, what has been stated uh, by ukrainian officials with putin worlds is just uh, crazy but at the same time you also can say that um uh, it's important to not only report but again provide additional context provide additional analysis uh of that and uh, yeah uh, kind of you know as, as one does in scientific work it's one thing to do research and it's then important to put it in the general context of general knowledge and it's the same here mm. and do you think one of the reasons that
1: um we don't do that to uh, such a degree that it um, ignites more feelings among, like, Europeans, for example, is that um, it is maybe too difficult for some journalists, it takes too much work, and then, therefore, they will maybe do something else instead, like Mm -hmm. writing more soft Mm -hmm. stories about more soft
0: subjects or... No, I, I guess, you know, just the basic mundane human, to human problems are always out there, right? When people are facing some big challenges and, uh, you know, they have to dive deeper into the history of Ukraine and Russia and so on. Of course, like we all humans sometimes, I guess, uh, people are tending to avoid doing additional work. But of course, I think when we're talking about the current situation, it has to be emphasized that right now it's not... It's very important. It's just like the human lives depend on how uh, high quality journalism we are facing. It's literally human lives which are at stake. So I think that it's just uh, a matter of, again, through media to realize how important their role is. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's uh, can also be motivating to realize that. But, of course, it's also a burden of responsibility. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a double-sided sword in that sense. But I hope it's... Uh, And I think uh, media, many media outlets realize that, but uh, I think it's also at the level of personal work of people who are invested in that, that they have to know that like, it's, it's not just about a story and uh, how precise it is. It's exactly about the public opinion then on the West, which is defining in the democratic world. And yeah, so
1: we're heading towards the end now. And I would just like to say that I, I can use myself as an example. So I never started this because I wanted to do, uh, so it is really, I call it a conversation series because I really don't like to call it a podcast because I associate like, um, political podcasts with like, that's more like people who like to talk cozy and not really get serious Um. but so, yeah, so I, st- I never started this conversation series because I wanted to make a podcast or anything. I only started it because I had uh, certain like political feelings towards what was happening in Ukraine and so on. And I think if, if I look at it, there are so many things that I could have like um, engaged my time in that other than this war, which would have been much easier uh, to gain a broader audience or more people listening and following and so on. And I just think that's maybe also one of the big problems that it is so difficult to really like break through the barriers. Um, when you talk about Ukraine, for example, because I think a lot of people also think, oh, but we all agree that uh, we should help Ukraine, blah, 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 but so, uh, or and so therefore, um, maybe it's not as interesting, or maybe they don't have as big a responsibility to keep talking about it and, and so on. And yeah, I just think that's uh, it's a huge problem, but I still get the sense after I've been doing it for like a longer period that people actually do start recognizing like, all right, so maybe there is something to it because this guy uh, completely voluntarily has spent so much time on it, and that maybe goes to show what you also talked about, that it is very fulfilling also when you realize that there are very important work to be be done. So, I think that's a positive thing, at least, that, um, that maybe it's not that many people, but the people like you and me who are engaged in this, really, we are really engaged in it. It's not just like to post a story on Instagram once every second month or something like that.
0: Oh, so, and I mean, there are actually many, many absolutely amazing people has, um, by so much of their time and personal life, uh, and I've been very privileged to have met so many people uh, during this time, and that has been probably one of the few things that we're keeping us uh, ukrainians abroad uh, in the same situation and trying to keep our trust in humanity is exactly those people like you who voluntarily just uh, you know try to make a difference and this is very important and i think this also proves that individuals matter and you maybe health can change something and this is i think the sole mindset that we can live and move forward with in if we want to preserve a liberal democracy right when we believe uh, that people matter and the uh, and that's, I think, important, and in general, while we were, of course, talking about many uh, depressing aspects of, uh, you didn't say, modern times, uh, it's also worth acknowledging that uh, Denmark and Danes have been uh, very helpful, and I also want to take an um, opportunity to say thank you to so many, and uh, Denmark in general. I think it's uh, been very important to be a country, uh, slash a leader. Well, one of the leaders among European countries to support Ukraine so and to push for supporting Ukraine. And also to add to that, I think, why, why is it important to keep attention going? Because maybe, and uh, we will all hope it will not come to that, but uh, we don't know what happens with the US elections, but maybe for European leaders it will come when it will be time to take a bigger responsibility for what's happening right now, which means, you know, ramping up uh, also industrial aspects of helping Ukraine and production of weapons and so on. And that's where it's important to keep the public attention and public support and backing it up. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's, that's quite important. Mm. And yeah, so we are going to uh, like end
1: it. Uh, now, uh, I'm I'm not going to just like end it. So I want to have like a soft ending as well. And I just realized today that, um, so in the beginning, uh, actually for a very long time, I always ended my conversations talking about a value, which I think had like stood out or had been especially important. So I want to get back to that today. So I just want to end it. Um, by saying that, and I will use my own example, so maybe you can, as an individual who is talking about this, or maybe you are just an individual who wants to be engaged, but don't really know how to. I just think that for me, the how isn't the most important thing for me. The why is way more important. So. So it goes like this. So every time I speak with someone who is uh, from Ukraine, who is a uh, Ukrainian, I always get the sense that they are just very grateful for me to be doing this work. And they actually really always, always, um, are so thankful. And when I was, uh, so I was in Chile last year in the fall and before that I wrote my bachelor about Ukraine bachelor and political science, about the war, and s- that was when I first started um, talking to other Ukrainians because I had to find some people to interview. And then one of the people I interviewed was a girl named Veronica, and we were talking uh, a bit and writing a bit also about um, Ukrainians feeling um, like forgotten and also Ukrainians being worried about maybe the West will just forget them. And then she wrote to me that um, she always tells her friends, like, at least we uh, had meal, for example. And uh, that was just something that really conveyed to me, all right, when I get back from Chile, I really have to, uh, like, step up the plate, so to say, um, because what I was al- already had done was very meaningful, but it could be even more uh, meaningful. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's just a thing I would like to say to anyone thinking about maybe engaging themselves that like the I need to say it is like that with politics because it's always a game of trying to convince people to be active in something engage in something but with the uh, Ukraine there is uh, a whole country and a whole population that um that you will um yeah, t- touch by by doing this because it is so meaningful so yeah that's that's one one it's not really a value it's more like uh thinking, I guess, but I think that's very important to say.
0: They break, and uh, yeah, it's uh, again at the level of uh, individuals, and when people are thinking about uh, how can I engage, so of course, there are uh, very certain organizations and ways to funnel your support, but even just by keeping it up in your personal space and talking to your friends and relatives, because again, we all are privileged here to live in the democracy when public opinion matters. So that's how you can make sure that the support will stay there. But again, I think with people, of like you were safe here.
1: <laughs> I hope so. Uh, yeah. And, uh, thanks for that as well. Uh, and I just realized that this was, was very, uh, like inward focused, what I just said, but a very important thing as well in this regard is that actually what I'm doing, um, I can also see is, um, like energetic for Ukrainians. Uh, so that when we talk about it, when we say certain stuff, that's also the kind of things that helps the Ukrainian to be more resolved. That is at least, uh, like the, the Ukrainians have so much resolve just by themselves, but it is also very, um, comforting is maybe not the right word, but, um, Reassuring. Reassuring, exactly. Yeah. Uh, whenever they hear someone from outside Ukraine talk about Ukraine with passion or anything like that, it's, as you're saying, it's very reassuring. So in that way, if we want Ukraine to win the war here in Denmark links, it is it is just an at there's the military level, the yeah concrete political level, but the, there is also the like the psychological level. Um, which is, um, like where the field that I think that I'm playing in playing with, maybe not the right word, but it's just to say that as well. So I think that will, uh, yeah, be the last thing that I have
0: to say. I don't know if you have anything you want to No, Again, as I said, I, I think many things have been said and I said that, Uh, it's important to remember and it's uh, as you say there are different levels but i think what's important is that as you pointed out from the beginning so just to uh, reframe to that is that it started when ukrainians have had absolute resolve to become a part of the european family right and that's why i think what you say that it's reassuring for ukrainians when uh, people here in europe speaking is that we don't feel abundant because it all feels like an Uh, that, you know, again, this more acute phase of war and of uh, clash has started when you say, okay, we want to be a democracy, we want to go that way. And, of course, for us, it's important to see the willingness of the European family to actually accept us, because then it looks like a very hopeless situation, right, if we try to turn there, but then we get a war and we don't get a, a welcome or an understanding or an attempt of a dialogue at least, right? So that's why it's a of crucial importance, actually, for this story, because again, that's where it all uh, essentially uh, gets very ignited. Is when there is a dialogue between Europe and Ukraine, right? Mm.
1: And thanks for those words, which will be the last today. And I hope everybody like enjoyed the conversation. Although we've got uh, maybe that is it, it's this has been one of the more um, like less heavy conversations, I guess, but that's also a result of the period we, we are in. But that was it for today. Thank you so much. All right, so that was the conversation with Sareki. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I think some key takeaways are that Sareki got actively engaged in the political struggle for Ukraine after the full-scale invasion happened. And I think that serves as an example. Another key takeaway is that We have to keep promoting the Ukrainian cause even in this difficult time. And I think we have to do that on two levels, both on a rational level, pointing out reasons as to why Ukraine still have all possibilities to win this war. And then maybe even more important, we have to also do it on an ideological and moral level. So that is the last thing I want to say, slava Ukraini.